I can do things that wear it without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of and fun. anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail on a journey of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and churning the green water with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer of Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where are we off to today, Mel? Well, Freddie, it's a good day for good friends and good stories, as usual. We're heading east today to the theme park mecca of the world, uh, which is, of course, Orlando, to meet up with our fellow storyteller and uh, my creative partner, the executive creative director at Storyland Studios, Jason Sorrell. Jason began his career, his career as a Jungle Cruise skipper, just like you. Uh, moved on to Disney Entertainment, writing for live shows uh, at a young age, I might, must say, before being tapped by... Uh, Walt Disney Imagineering to write for attractions, lands, uh, and entire parks. From there, he transitioned over to Universal Creative as a senior creative director, creating experiences for what are sure to be the most dazzling, not to mention expensive parks on the planet. (laughs) Ain't that the truth. And Jason has also been entrusted with much of the Disney Parks story as the author of several amazing books detailing the creation, development, and untold legends of many of the world's most beloved attractions. Alrighty, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Mel, it's an exciting time as Universal Beijing is preparing to open this spring. And, uh, you know, for folks listening at the exact moment that we're, this is released, you you can see the press releases coming out. I mean, the, uh, at this time, it's going to be one of the biggest uh, theme park openings ever. Seven themed lands, six fully IP-based uh, lands that are that are incredible. We're talking about Kung Fu Panda, the Land of Awesomeness, Transformers, Minion Land, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, Jurassic World, and uh, Hollywood, a uh, Hollywood Land, and Water World. It's finally getting its own land in a theme park, and it's it's incredible because IP based lands weren't the deal in the old days you had some ip in a land but that this is now the lear- lessons we've learned from the wizarding world of harry potter and star wars galaxy's edge it just sets you up for uh just incredibly immersive ip based experiences you know it's funny cuz that's actually to me the the more boring project <laughs> of <laughs> what our friend jason the, the i call him the billion 6 billion dollar man you know to, the only human alive that's uh, you know creatively led not just one but two 6 billion dollar uh, projects but um, you know talking about epic universe and some of the paradigms that were being explored with with that the idea of kind of uh, separate gates or almost like ungated lands that you could meander from a, a central garden uh, kind of this Tivoli inspired central garden into these different realms uh, and step into these different IP universes and, and again spending the night um, in the park right um, and I know they they went through a couple different iterations and different options but I'm, I'm so pleased that they've landed on on um, 
creating that uh, that destination hotel within the park. So oh, yeah. uh, again, both of these are just going to be so fun for <laughs> fans. I, I, I do have a, a plenty friends that are over there doing the 18 hour days in the midst of COVID trying to get this park uh, just perfect. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's going to be a pretty epic uh, opening for Universal Beijing. And as we record this, uh, they just announced the restart of Epic Universe. So, so pleased and thrilled with with all that good stuff. And um, I know Jason had a, a fun ride doing all that stuff. Well, you know, and Jason, too, is a huge fan of all of this stuff and loves telling uh, these stories that uh, are so close to uh, so many of our hearts, you know, growing up with some of those um, those great parks. And, and so as the creative director of not one, but two $6 billion theme parks, it's like you feel like saying to Jason, hey, Jason, you've just <laughs> you've just designed two six billion dollar parks. What are you going to do? It's like, how does he top this? It's like, yeah, it's like the old Super Bowl commercials. You not you won <laughs> not just one, but two Super Bowls. What's what's next? Well, I know from uh, my you know, from my perspective, it's about keeping his plate pretty full with uh, the two theme parks we're working on, plus another uh, major studio tour. I uh, can't wait to announce those, but we are definitely having fun in the sandbox together. And I've, I've definitely enjoyed uh, uh, collaborating and getting in the sandbox with Jason on, on all the fun stuff we're doing. And, and I know that he, he's been awesome as far as saying this. It kind of almost is more fun for him because it reminds him of kind of getting into the DeLorean and getting back into the, the early days of WED. You know, it was much smaller <laughs> creative team and and uh, maybe a little less IP based and, and a little more uh, kind of collaborative and uh, working with original stories um, yeah. in the soil specific cultural context we get to work within. But uh, yeah, we're, we're having fun. So, yeah. Well, uh, today's guest, folks, is Jason Sorrell, the executive creative director at Storyland Studios. He knows more about these upcoming universal experiences than anybody because he was the senior creative director on the projects. Spoiler alert. You're not going to get any spoilers in this episode, so don't you worry. Jason Sorrell is an amazing storyteller, whether it be in the shows, attractions, or lands that he has written. And as you're about to find out, he's a great storyteller in person as well. Buckle up and hold on tight. It's now time for the epic themed attraction podcast interview with Jason Sorrell. Jason, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, this is this is really exciting, and you're um, you're you've been a good friend uh, so far in the times that we've uh, connected, and uh, I'm looking forward to this just continuing to grow. You're uh, um, you're somebody that I know I look up to, and a lot of our listeners do as well. Well, thank you very much, and it's I've uh, been incredibly impressed with the work that Storyland Studios is doing. Uh, I've had a lot of conversations with you and with Mel and with others. Uh, and about just how much it feels like WED did in the early days of oh, Disneyland wow, yeah. in terms of it, you know, this uh, smaller operation doing, uh, in many ways, a, a much more pure version you know, of the kind of work we do, the art of theme design and you mm. know, experiential storytelling. Well, that means the the world coming from you, yeah. <laughs> even even doing it on Zoom, but I'm I'm looking forward to getting some some hang time together with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, if I years. never have another Zoom call in my life, you know, it'll be too. Soon. <laughs> well, um, it's it's really great to have you on and and to kind of dig in f for for 
those who don't know, uh, Jason's kind of had this wonderful, expansive career in theme entertainment, um, moving from both entertainment uh, design and uh, writing to into the uh, theme park world and done it for both of the big dogs in the house, both for Walt Disney Imagineering and for Universal Creative. Um, and that, that just makes me want to go back in time and kind of <laughs> d- dredge it up. How did you start and uh, what, what was your path like? Well, it's interesting because, you know, uh, people famously say if you talk to 10 different people in the uh, themed entertainment design business, you'll get 10 vastly different origin stories. So that's why we ask it every time. (laughs) Yeah. And what I love about that is that it gives people uh, inspiration and confidence because they see, you know, the the, all of the various walks of life, you know, that, that we all come from. Uh, in my case, going back to you know earliest elementary school, I think, I knew I wanted to work in entertainment, in show business, and that fluctuated between film and television and theme park show as I grew older and went through phases. You know, for the longest time, it was, oh, I'm going to be a movie director. Uh, right, and then right. what, what happened with me, I was always uh, very much a Disney fan since earliest childhood, you know, the park, op- uh, Walt Disney World opened in 1971. You know, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, or the Versailles of the Midwest, as we like to call it. <laughs> uh, sure. it so I grew up uh, with Walt Disney World, uh, opened in 71. My first uh, trip there was in 1975. I was five years old. Now everyone's going to be doing a very simple math. Uh, and, you know, I was kind of hooked from that point. And uh, like any kid in the majority of the 20th century on, I grew up on Disney movies and uh, in the Sunday night show. Uh, so I was always a Disney person, always drawn to Disney. And uh, so that was always in my sights in terms of what I might want to do long term. Uh, and what what's, I think, most interesting to me is that looking back now, I realize that I always wanted to be an Imagineer. Uh, but for reasons we're probably going to get into soon here, I never thought I could do it because I wasn't an yeah, artist, sure. an architect, or an engineer. Those three key disciplines. So I didn't even think that was a road that was open to me. And then in 1984, when I was in the middle of uh, well, what we call junior high, I think it's middle school now, uh, but back you know during on the Little House on the Prairie days, it was junior high. Um, <laughs> There was a, a, a very seminal event in, in the history of the Walt Disney Company, you know, where the company almost uh, was sold off and imploded uh, through green mail and, and, and corporate raiding. And uh, had that happened, you know, the Walt Disney Company as we know it today simply would not exist. And uh, right. Michael Eisner and Frank Wells kind of rode into the rescue and rejuvenated the company. And what that did for me was it uh, shifted my thinking a little bit. Uh, as I was getting into high school, and I had been planning on uh, going to UCLA film school. Uh, but those two guys and what they did at Disney sort of inspired me to, to change my focus within entertainment. And I thought, I still very much want to be in show business and entertainment, but I want to be now I want to be an executive. I want to run something because that seems to mm. be where the action is. So uh, in, you know, I, I deviated from film school and uh, went to what was then the top business school in Ohio, thinking, okay, I'm going to go for business, and I'm going the Eisner and Wells route. And then my freshman summer, uh, I did the Walt Disney World College program, which uh, uh, it, it has been an amazing uh, launch for so many people, so thousands many people, and yeah. thousands of people, great launching pad. 
uh, and had the time of my life. Uh, I was a Jungle Cruise skipper. So that are was, you serious? Yeah, absolutely. So was I. Absolutely. So, hey, we two skippers in the room. Abs- this is great. And it, and you know, it's just because of the lore and the history of the Jungle Cruise. I, it's just such a wonderful first Disney job to have and first sure industry is. job to have. So, um, you know, I did that and then I took the, the classes that were part of the college program, got a degree, a doctorate degree, because it's Disney, so there has to be some kind of play on words, there you uh, go. in studio <laughs> production. And then the next summer I came down uh, on, on my own, as a lot of uh, we alumni did, and uh, spent a couple few weeks at, at Jungle Cruise, but then auditioned for entertainment and got cast as... Spoiler alert, I hope there are no small children listening, uh, as Pluto at Epcot. And that was really the summer that changed my life uh, because I didn't have the greatest early college experience, didn't adjust to it very well, was always, you know, going home for the weekend, just didn't care for it. But that second summer at Disney, I really found my niche. I really found a place that I felt comfortable. And it was at that point that I thought, you know what, I'm going to transfer down here. Uh, There was never any question of finishing college uh, for two very good reasons, my mother and my father. (laughs) But um, it was also something that I wanted for me. Um, And, you know, Disney then and now, you know, has a a very strong promote from within philosophy. So I thought, okay, I'm going to keep working here every day or as many days as I can while finishing my degree. And that turned out to be the, the single greatest thing I could have done for myself because mm. literally within a month of moving down here, 20 years old, Pluto at Epcot, hourly cast member, uh, a person I worked with named Bob Crummett, who was a goofy and who, who was also a lead back then, you know, the guy that walks around with the characters and keeps them safe. Uh, he came up to me one morning and said, hey, you seem to be a pretty good writer. Uh, And I think it was because I did these David Letterman style top 10 lists that I would post Uh in the green room in the morning. And uh, I did departmental newsletters and stuff. And uh, he said, I have an idea for a character Christmas show. And I was wondering if you'd like to work on it with me. You know, and at that time, I'm a 20 year old idiot. I didn't know that hourly Plutos didn't just write shows and present them (laughs) to management. But we did it. We came up with a a holiday show for the for World Showcase called From All of Us to All of You. We even got uh, another Goofy who would go on to be a Disney animator to do some rudimentary concept art for us. And even wow. though it was unheard of, it somehow made its way through the approval process all the way to what was then called creative entertainment. And they said, we love it. We want to do it. And uh, I got <laughs> I got pulled out of the Pluto costume and sent over to a creative entertainment where I met a man named George Kohler, who was a legendary show director in Disney live entertainment and a wonderful, mm. wonderful mentor as well mm. to so many people. And he said to me, he goes, you are basically going to do my job. You're just not going to get credit <laughs> for it. And again, as a 20 year old idiot, I go, well, why not? And he goes, because you're a 21-year-old nebbish. And and I'm like, I I go, what's a nebbish? He goes, it's Yiddish for nobody. And that sounds harsh. He said it very lovingly and funny in in more of a Nathan Lane kind of way. Um, and And he said, but my advice to you is to do the job, do my job, keep your eyes and ears open. And by the end of this thing, you will have received a master's degree in Disney Entertainment. And that is exactly right. what happened. And then so, in December. So much funner than an MBA. 
Good yeah, job. exactly, exactly, right? <laughs> and you know, so you can imagine being a 21-year-old kid on a phone in Florida patched into a recording session in California listening to Wayne Allwine and Rusey Taylor and Bill Farmer yeah, record wow, wow. dialogue you wrote. And then to be a 21-year-old kid seeing that show with words mm. that I wrote in a concept I helped develop, uh, that was when the light went off a second time and said, no, dummy, you don't, you, you don't want to be Michael Eisner. You don't want to be Frank Wells. You're, you're a creative. Mm. You're a storyteller. Yeah. So uh, what I did was I immediately started um, more of the same, just throwing out more ideas. I actually did wind up transferring to uh, what was then Disney MGM Studios Entertainment because there was a little bit of friction for us uh, with other cast members uh, in the vein of, well, why do they get to do this? How, how come they're special? You know, why can't, why can't I do something like that? And the answers to those questions were, you can and you would if you spent less time complaining about us and, and did it, you know, and I, I don't mean that in a mean spirited way. It was, you know, it's like, do it, you know, don't complain about it, do it. So I transferred over to the studios immediately started up the same thing. Hey, what if we did this? What if we did that? I got a uh, live uh, face characters into the display window of one of the stores, uh, Cruella DeVille and, and other characters who did like live mannequin stuff. There was an area oh. of the park that had faux snow, and I said, why don't we start doing meet and greets out here and people can take their annual Christmas card pictures regardless of the time of the year. Started right. doing the same stuff. And then one day I came in in 1992, and uh, this is embarrassing to admit now, <laughs> but there was a movie Disney put out called Encino Man with Sean yeah, Astin. Yeah, yeah. And Polly Shore, you know, hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Not, uh, it, it, it will never be confused with Citizen Kane, um, but it was a comedy about, you know, like Sean Astin discovers a, a caveman who gets unfrozen and, and adjusts to life in the 20th century. So, and it also introduced the, the song uh, I'm Too Sexy by Wright Said Fred. Uh, did it really? Yeah, it, it, was, it came from that movie, or it was at least featured in that movie. So I went to entertainment and said, okay, on the tram tour on Residential Street, why don't we have a bunch of cave girls pour out of one of the houses into the yard with the Pauly Shore character and the Sean Astin character, and they can do a number to I'm Too Sexy. And they're like, we love this, but it involves <laughs> an attraction. So you're going to have to go talk to Imagineering. Another okay. light bulb moment. I, and I went, are, are you kidding? I, I get to go into that building and talk to an Imagineer. <laughs> so I did, and I met a producer named Mike West. Or what I should say is uh -huh. I met him for the second time. Because a year earlier, during the Walt Disney World 20th anniversary press event, uh, I got a credential to the press event through Dave Smith, a, a Disney legend, oh, yeah. founder of the archives. Um, he got me into the press event. And uh, I will never forget, it was in the Muppet Courtyard in front of Muppet Vision 3D, I saw Marty Sklar. And I wow. went up to him and I said, oh, Mr. Sklar, I, I'm Jason. I, I, I play Pluto here at the studio, but <laughs> I'm also a writer and I've done some of these little entertainment things and I, I would love to, and my dream is to be an Imagineer. And he, it, was, it was like Obi-Wan Kenobi turned around. He literally put a hand <laughs> on my shoulder and said, then I, what I want you to do is call a guy named Mike West. His office is right here at the studio. You tell him I told you to call and go see him. So oh, wow. I did. And uh, Mike's <laughs> literally Mike's first words to me were, 
the only reason you are sitting in that chair is because <laughs> God told me to talk to you. <laughs> Marty Sklar was your reference. Um, so then a, you know, so a few cool. months later, when I show up in his office with this Encino Man thing, there was a little bit of a, all right, well, obviously this kid's not going away. So, um, But what he taught me was he said, okay, you have a really cute little moment here. But at Disney, we tell stories, so it can't be a moment. It's got to be a story with mm, a beginning, mm. a middle, and an end. And right on the spot, he's like, okay, we're going to add sound effects to simulate the earthquake that brought the caveman up out of the ground. And he just started spitballing these things that gave it even something so seemingly simple and uh, almost inconsequential, uh, right. a, a three-act framework. And then literally within weeks, another movie was coming out. This one was a, a lot better, Sister Act. And I said, all right, well, there's a church at the end of Re Residential Street. Why don't we have nuns pour out of that and, uh, and do songs from that film? And then that led to a series of these kind of extracurricular activities that started at Epcot. And uh, within a couple years, if you looked at my resume, it actually looked like I knew what I was doing, even though I was still a college student and, uh, and didn't have any real experience. But I had the illusion of experience. And uh, there was a fateful day where another character, another Pluto, Pluto should stick together, kids. Remember that yeah, if you ever right. audition. Um, there was a guy named Charles Graham who said, hey, you know, I know the lady over at Universal that produces Halloween Horror Nights. I'll, I'll introduce you. Uh, so I gave her a call, and this was in, in October, and she said, kid, we're in the middle of Halloween. Then I got Christmas. I'll call you back after the first of the year. And I thought, yeah, all right, that's not going to happen. But it did. January of 1994, I get a phone call. She brought me in. She looks at my resume. She looks at back then VH test, uh, VHS videotapes of all of these right. things that I had done. <laughs> and to a young, lean, and mean company like Universal in the early 90s, 24 or not, it looked like I knew what I was doing. So right, uh, right. that was when I became a professional writer and got paid to develop live entertainment concepts for Halloween Horror Nights, uh, including, after my second meeting with her, Bill and Ted's excellent Halloween adventure, which would go oh, on wow. to be a big tradition for them. And, uh, and, and I was the, the young writer and director who kind of gave it the format that it would go on to follow for 25 years. But Wow, that's cool. Talk to me a little bit more about that, because those those shows, the Halloween Horror Nights and then Bill and Ted's are pretty much legend. Uh, and and the you know, they 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 have similar setups as the hang the hanging over at Knott's Berry Farm. But there's this this really cool topical on on the tip of your tongue what is going on in our culture right now uh that happens in there and how does a writer or how do you how do you keep up with that in uh well in that what's, show? what's interesting and i i didn't realize it at the time because at the time i had never heard of the hanging and maybe you could tell me somebody told me that the hanging actually wound up copying Bill and Ted in terms of the topical oh, I, stuff. Yeah, I, I don't, don't know. I don't know because I honestly, and I'm not trying to, you know, lay, oh, right. lay claim to anything. I but somebody said no, that actually happened later. You guys, were I'm first. just more familiar. So Cause, that, yeah, because so, it's local. I, 
Um, yeah, because it's local. But what? Uh, so uh, Julie Zimmerman, who was the uh, the project manager, the producer of Halloween Horror Nights, that lady that brought me in, uh, it was her <laughs> idea, and uh, she just thought, oh, these guys seem funny. You know, let's put them in a yeah. weird Halloween situation. So the first show was in 1992, and then they repeated it in '93. And without taking anything away from it, it was pretty much just the existing Wild West stunt show with Bill and Ted added and uh, a couple of other scary characters like a right. Razor Claws, who was really Freddy Krueger, and uh, the, the <laughs> Annihilator, who was re- really the Terminator. So when I came in, uh, you know, this was my second meeting with Julie after my first round of pitches. And I'll never forget because like my blood went cold. She said, OK, now let's see what you can do with Bill and Ted. And again, you have to think, I'm 24 years old with just this extracurricular stuff on my resume, and someone has just given me the keys to a Ferrari. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I did what was ultimately the second show produced, since they did that first one two years in a row. So I, I, I went off, just thought through the whole thing, came back in and said, here's what I think we should do. I want to treat this show as a 25-minute-long SNL sketch where Bill and Ted are going to come up against uh, major pop-cultural figures from the year in film and television and music uh, and also any, uh, you know, uh, political stories of the, of the day, sure. just topical stuff. And that will allow us to change it every year and then we'll build to this musical finale. But it's an SNL sketch with stunts, pyrotechnics, fighting, music, the works. And they're like, sounds great. <laughs> So um, being a student of Disney uh, and Disney being the inventor, you know, of synergy, I thought, okay, well, what does Universal have coming up? Uh, One of the first things I had pitched was a show. uh, There was a film that came out in the summer of 94 called The Shadow based on the old radio show with Alec Baldwin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had pitched a stunt show called Shadow of the Night for the animal actors stage. And they wisely passed on that one because the movie didn't do very well. But then there was another movie coming up in the fall called Time Cop, uh, starring uh, what was then one of the biggest box office draws in the world, Jean-Claude Van Damme, which astounds me even 30 years later. Um, (laughs) But I'm looking ahead, and uh, they got me an early screening of that movie, so I saw it in like June or July, and I can't remember when it was supposed to come out. And I came in with a script called Bill and Ted's Excellent Halloween Adventure, Bill and Ted Meet Time Cop. And uh, I and the big thing Which with is me, perfect. That's the, yeah, the and, Bill and Ted is time travel. Absolutely, and that's what made it perfect. So the whole thing was like this battle for the phone booth and control of time. Because yeah. as a student of Disney storytelling, it was very important to me that the show have a story. Bill and Ted had to have a reason to be there. They had to have an agenda as the protagonist, yeah. and the bad guys had to have a reason for being there, and they had to have an agenda. And then through that conflict, I could introduce other positive characters and negative characters, heroes and Mm -hmm. villains, and that would allow for some of the fun to play out. And then what really pushed it over the edge was, you'll probably remember this from the summer of 94, but I came into Julie's office one morning, kind of sheepish, because I didn't know (laughs) how far this was pushing things or shoving things. And, And I just sat down in her chair and I'm just sitting there and she goes, what's on your mind? I go do you think we could drive a white Ford Bronco onto the stage and have OJ get out? And she just, she didn't really even react. She just kind of looked off into space and she goes, I don't see why not. 
And now in today's day and age, I can see a lot of reasons why not. But back then, so we did that. We had a huge cat fight between Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan that brought the house down. But the point is, uh, I will never forget the team member preview because the you know they always have a preview night for Halloween for Universal folks. The energy in that arena—it's a twenty-five hundred seat arena. It blew the roof off the place. And I had executives coming up to me, faces bright red with emotion. I also think they'd had a, a little too much to drink. But something to drink. <laughs> neither here nor there. That is also part of Halloween. But they're like pumping my hand and clapping me on the back and going, do you know what this means? Do you know what you've done? And I'm like... Not really, no. It seemed to go well, you know. <laughs> it's like, um, but that was what kicked it off. And then I, uh, that I was part of that show. That was kind of my calling card for the next five years, uh, cycling through all of the pop cultural characters. Uh, and I stayed with it until I left Universal for Imagineering. And then around that same time, I also uh, got the assignment to write a day in the park with Barney. So I do apologize oh, yeah. to 25 years worth of parents. <laughs> um, but that show up until recently was still running. I got to take um, my kids. I had kids much later in life. So as recently as six months ago, eight months ago, however, look, time has no That's meaning That's the last anymore. thing you were doing before COVID hit, huh? <laughs> exactly. It's like there was March and now. Um, but I, I can't tell you how emotional it was to sit in that Barney theater with uh, then, for me, a two-year-old and a six-year-old who'd been loving the yeah. show since he was two, thinking, I wrote this thing 25 years ago, <laughs> and now I'm 50 with two really young kids who are totally digging it. And it was really incredibly emotional. So Halloween, Bill and Ted, Barney really formed the early part of my entertainment career uh, and it was through that entertainment work, because I was part of the team that started developing live entertainment concepts for Islands of Adventure, and finally uh, their head writer for what was then called Planning and Development, which is now Universal Creative, a guy named Ross Osterman wound up becoming this, the third major influential figure in my career after Mike West and Julie Zimmerman. He said, what do you think about trying your hand at attractions? And it was kind of the same thing as, as the Encino Man thing. I'm like, that's what I got into this to do. I, I would love to. <laughs> so he said, all right, well, we're going to make you the show writer for Jurassic Park, the land. So that was my first major theme park credit. The River Adventure was my first e-ticket credit. You know, even though it was an adaptation, it was still legit. And uh, yep. that was the experience that put me over the top when uh, in 1998, an opening for a show writer came up at Walt Disney Imagineering. Well, I feel wow. like we're on this uh, epic journey, you know, from the Jungle <laughs> Cruise to uh, Universal's Epic Universe and Storyland yes. Studios. No so, wonder I'm tired. But, but that that, <laughs> yes. that segue from entertainment and writing into uh, placemaking and, um, you know, attractions, how did that, I mean, that seems like that's a pretty significant uh, uh, step stepping stone in the story. It, it really is. And what, what I have found is that, especially in terms of writing and direction, and direction can mean so many things. Like most people you see director, the, or hear the word director, the average person probably thinks of a movie director first and foremost. But of course, there are theatrical directors, there's creative directors in advertising, there's creative directors in our business. But to me, I've always felt directing is directing. And, you can do, and if you can do it, you can adapt yourself to individual media. 
and and I think writing is similar. Writing, I tend to look at, look at like a lot of writers, which is you either have that innate talent or you don't. If you don't, you're probably not going to be able to learn it. If you do, you can learn to do it better and you can learn to do it in different formats. So I was a self-taught screenwriter because once I start, see, I started writing professionally. I literally started getting paid for it while I was still in my last semester or approaching my last semester at college. So I go into the counselor's office and ask the one question that they don't want to hear. I said, (laughs) how do I get out of here the fastest? And he's like, what are you, you slacking little jerk? What are you? And I said, well, no, no, no. I'm already making a living and I want the degree, but I need full-time availability as quickly as possible. So he pulled out the transcript and he said, okay, you take one more management class, you got your minor in business, and you're this close to liberal studies. And if you're going into a creative field, that's fine. You'll, you'll, you'll be just fine. You don't need a communications degree. You'll, you'll, you'll be fine, which is what I wow. did. So, um, <laughs> but the point being, I, the first thing I taught myself to do was screenwriting. And then what was interesting to me is uh, the more you delve into the history of our art, uh, as we know, it derived and evolved from the film industry. The first Imagineers yep. were filmmakers. So for me, it turned out that studying screenwriting, I couldn't have asked for a better introduction to writing for themed entertainment. So I took all of the same principles from format to tense, you know, word tense, things like that, <laughs> and applied that. Uh, to writing for live entertainment and then for attractions. And the only difference is in one, you're writing essentially a play or I I use the screenplay format, but it's live theater. So you're basically writing a play or a musical. And then when I made the transition to attractions, I just intuitively wrote the guest's journey in present tense and like a film, wrote it in such a way that anyone reading it would see it and feel it. And when you think mm-hmm. about it, that's what we do. So that yeah, was the, yeah. the, the, it wound up, even though I didn't really know it, hmm. it wound up being the perfect training and the perfect way to approach it. So when I hit the ground running at Imagineering, I, I was already positioned for success, even if it was accidental. Yeah, I didn't even know I was preparing. But the funny story there is this, uh, there's a job posting for a show writer so I apply for it. They said, okay, all right, your interview is at two, on Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Go to this office. Who's sitting in that office? Mike West. Oh, nice. <laughs> so he looks up at me, smiles, looks back down at my resume, and he goes, I'll be damned. Five years ago, I told you, to, you that you needed to go out and get more experience, and that's exactly what you did. And he goes, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to come home. And he goes, well, okay, you're an Imagineer. You know, and that, oh, that's that literally so how, and then I spent the next 15 years at, at Imagineering, you know, doing every kind of writing there is, you know, from, yeah. you know, treatments and scripts to, to plaque copy to graphics copy, nomenclature, naming things, everything, you know, a writer uh, or today a story editor does at WDI. Uh, and then over... Uh, the course of those years, I also had opportunities to produce. I produced uh, uh, Disney's Magical Express uh, down here oh, at wow. Walt Disney World. Um, I produced the Magic in Motion program for the transportation system, which introduced the audio um, 
dedicated soundtracks and and uh, audio messaging to the buses. Uh, I cast two new voices of Disney for the monorail, named some cruise ships, uh, came up with Saratoga Springs. <laughs> I was all over the place, you know. Just that's great. Yeah, you know, resorts, restaurants, shops, nightclubs, the, the cruise ships. You name. Well, it. what's interesting about that is that those projects, I, I suppose, with uh, that that writing. They, they they pull you over to advise and and into those things and you know you soak it up and it becomes you and then you're able to write that but that gives you a lot more flexibility to be involved in a lot of things it, right? it really does it, because some of the disciplines obviously are so uh, most of the disciplines in themed entertainment are pretty specific which in some ways makes it a risky and precarious business because you feel like after 20 years like oh my goodness I'm, I'm only qualified to do one thing yeah like yeah. in my case it, it, it's it's more about discipline like I can write books I can write movies I just need to have the discipline to do that yes, and then yes. the the uh, providence that something will happen with it but you know there are other things that I can do in that in that realm but the cool thing about writing for themed entertainment is you generally are among that first group of people to attack something because as a yeah. writer, your core business is story. Now, in, in, in themed entertainment, we're all storytellers, regardless of what your discipline is. And every what I tell people, especially young people and interns, I say every decision you make when you approach your work is either going to make this thing, whatever it is, no matter how big or small it is, it's either going to make it better it's going to make it worse. It's either going to advance the story or it's going to dilute the story. And that's the vigilance you have to possess mm, when it mm. comes to the long-term conceptual thinking of a project. Because that's how the, when something evolves over years, you know, uh, kind of like a film in, in so many ways, there are so many opportunities for something to go off the rails. And that's why I found creative direction, I think, to be my ultimate calling because directing is a natural outgrowth of writing and that particular position allows you to take a step back and make sure that everyone is rowing in the right direction so that we wow. wind up doing right by the audience because my philosophy yeah, be, oh, i'd love for you to elaborate on that you know because we've talked this in the past you know we've interviewed uh entertainment folks creative directors uh and, you know, there's different paths to that uh, coveted creative director role. And, you know, in a lot of the fan community, they, they, they particularly love to see the artwork of a Herb Ryman or even some of Tony Baxter stuff, the, the creative directors that came up through either art, design or architecture. Um, but then on the flip side, you've had um, guys like Gary Goddard, you know, coming up from more of the entertainment uh, directing, uh, you know, live entertainment side. Uh, and, you know, they, they definitely... Um, can make a strong argument that we're in the show business here and, and you have to be able to kind of creatively think of this as a multi-sensory experience that you're producing and directing. Um, have you found that kind of almost false dichotomy uh, or tension? It's, uh, <laughs> it's a really sensitive <laughs> subject and, and a sore spot. And it, it, the funny thing is it doesn't need to be because I would also point to whenever I get that kind of bias, if you will, I'm like, hello, Marty Sklar, hired out of college by Walt Disney, who right. appeared to know what he was doing, you know, and Marty was a writer. <laughs> Tom Fitzgerald, Kevin Rafferty, you know, uh, Imagineering is riddled, the history of Imagineering is riddled with writers who, mm -hmm. uh, you know, went on into broader creative development or creative direction roles. And I think the thing is, and, and look, no one is more... Uh, um, 
no one is a bigger admirer of, of that kind of art than I am. I, I have it hanging mm, in my mm-hmm. house. Her right. Bryman is a genius. Well, you, you've Mark written the, uh, the, the best coffee table books. On, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> on and the motivation, part. part of the motivation for writing those books was I want people to have access to sketches and paintings and renderings from Mark Davis, Ken Anderson, Colin Campbell, Sam McKim that they didn't even know existed. So yes, I have yes. never had anything but respect for the visual folks, you know, the illustrators, the art directors, you know, because uh, a lot of those guys came from live action art direction, in addition to mm-hmm. Walt's old uh, own animation studio. So what I've discovered is that the two main tracks to creative direction appear to be art direction and illustration and story and writing. Story being mm-hmm. uh, the bigger umbrella term, obviously. And that's the the track I happen to be on. Uh, I don't think one is inherently better than another uh, because I've seen brilliant, brilliant artists who may not have the greatest story sense. So they might produce something that looks spectacular and doesn't make a lick of sense. And the guests recognize that. Then on the other hand, you could have someone on my side of the house where this story could be bulletproof. But unless I'm working with top flight art directors and concept illustrators, you know, I'm not going to do it. You don't want me. You're you're never going to see something I drew hanging in the Disney, the art of Disney (laughs) store. It's just not going to happen. And that's why collaboration is so important. But my belief, even though I have um, experienced prejudice, uh, I, I actually had someone say to me one time, well, you could never be a creative director here. You don't draw. And that was a yeah. <laughs> huge blow to me, a huge blow. And it was one of the reasons I wound up leaving Disney for Universal, because they gave me that chance for which I will wow. forever be appreciative. But I would say my own personal philosophy, even after I, we discussed those two tracks, it doesn't matter. You could be a graphics designer, a choreographer, a costume designer, whatever your individual discipline happens to be. If you have that ability to think conceptually, to think through the guest experience, and more to the point, direct and inspire a multidisciplinary team of people to all row in the same direction, you can be a creative director. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think anyone's ever wondered how, how well does Steven Spielberg draw. Yeah, you know, well, he his own set design, it. or how yeah. well could he actually uh, get in front of the camera and be an actor? You know, I mean, he, it's he just not real. It. it does not compute. It doesn't. Well, really, if you, know. you watch the Blues Brothers, you'll see how well he does as an actor, which is not not very. Um, and then he's joked about the fact that even when he'll try to block out rough storyboards to hand to his storyboard artists, he's openly admitted it's stick figures and it, it looks like a drawing on the wall of a cave somewhere. But on the other hand, he's Steven Spielberg. <laughs> so he's got that going <laughs> How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they're felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. 
Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit StorylandStudios.com or call now, 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big ideas, best ally. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I, lo- I love that balance of like Bill and Ted and the irreverence there. Uh, and, and just wanted to ask you about how you approach kind of touching some of the most sacred holy relics, you know, in, in the Disney uh, parks, you know, the, whether it's the Haunted Mansion, the Pirates, uh, even Fantasyland at the Magic Kingdom, the heart and soul of yeah, the absolutely. most attended theme park, uh, you know, on the planet. Uh, you know, how do you handle that gingerly with that right balance of... Um... Well, here's the thing. Uh, it's funny because now, uh, as you guys well know, and Mel, we've had this conversation multiple times since we've known each other. There is this big almost schism between original storytelling and original content or content that is based on real life, you know, historical figures, historical events, and the world of IP, intellectual property. I think themed entertainment is pretty much in the same boat the film industry is in, which is Mm. there is someone in a room somewhere in a very expensive suit saying, (laughs) if we're going to spend multiple hundreds of millions of dollars on this thing, the audience better know what it is before they set foot in the park or in the theater. So Mm. these days, it is hard to sell something that doesn't have somebody in a cape or with a lightsaber, you know, or something of that nature that is essentially pre-sold. I have always, again, because I've been a student of Disney and the Disney approach to what we do since elementary school, with the exceptions of the original storytelling, like The Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean, Big Thunder Mountain, Space Mountain, you name it. I have always viewed what we do as essentially being a business of adaptation, and that is something that I take very seriously. It doesn't mean that I think every attraction needs to be a note-for-note book report, but when you adapt something, it brings with it a set of expectations on the part of the audience. And there is something that Tony Baxter sums up beautifully in the last episode of the Imagineering story on Disney Plus, where he talks about emotional relevance, creating emotional Mm -hmm. relevance to the audience. And the way I approach that, I learned directly from Tony, uh, because he's the one that taught me the technique of sitting down and saying, okay, we're doing an experience, and I say experience because it could be a show, a ride, a, a movie, whatever, on X, Indiana Jones. And that was the example he used because it was Indiana Jones adventure. If I'm the audience and you're telling me I'm going to go on an Indiana Jones attraction, what would I absolutely expect to see as part of that experience? And what would I be disappointed by if it wasn't there? Well, you got to have Indy, you got to have the hat, you got to have snakes, you got to have a rolling boulder. And that is how I have approached a lot of those things, especially, as you say, the kind of crown jewels, because I've been able to contribute through our enhancements over the years 
to Pirates of the Caribbean and to the Haunted Mansion. And we have found that the secret there is to, whenever possible, be additive. You know, keep most of what everyone loves and add things (laughs) that are in that same spirit so they fit very naturally with what's already there. It's when you get into trouble or can get into trouble is when you start wholesaling, wholesale cutting things or changing things right. or getting rid of things. Uh, and that's why I thought, you know, back in 2006, the addition to Captain Jack of Captain Jack Sparrow to Pirates of the Caribbean was so well done because it was additive. The one right. thing I missed a little bit was, oh, the, the Blackbeard captain's uh, yep. kind of gone yep. and now it's Barbosa. But I can live with that. But they kept everything else. And then in 2007... When we did the uh, Haunted Mansion enhancement here in Florida, you know, we removed that almost pitch black ascent up a staircase where there was just kind of a day glow spider in a web and put in the endless staircase scene. Same thing. That's additive. You're not. I mean, you're removing something that was kind of irrelevant to begin with and you're adding and what you're adding fits comfortably in with what's already there. Therefore, whether you've been on it a hundred times and we're used to the old one or are going on the new version for the first time, you almost have the exact same experience because the team has worked so hard to create that seamless experience. Yeah. And that, that scene really is beautifully spooky and sets a tone even that you, that needed to happen or, or <laughs> it's a step further yeah. into well the, done, the, Freddy. the scary. And you know, thank here's you, something you, you. Uh, that I don't know that everyone has noticed, but we actually returned to an early Ken Anderson sketch. So when you're going through that mm. scene and see the ghostly footsteps going up and down the steps, that was taken, including the general appearance of the footprint from a sketch Ken made back in the 50s for a walkthrough oh, version mm-hmm. of the attraction. So again, yeah. a lot of this stuff, to your point, Mel, is, is done with a great deal of reverence. You just have to control the level of reverence, which is something I think Walt himself would agree with, because if you don't, then you're running a museum as opposed yes. to a living organism, which is what Walt always intended Disneyland to be. That's why it always kind of amuses me when people lose their minds that Disney's changing something. Walt would never stand for this. He'd go crazy. He's rolling yeah. over in his grave. And I'm sitting here going, Walt would be the first person to tear something down or change it or replace it. Because he did. Because he, he did. Tomorrowland was changed twice, you know, in, 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 in his, his lifetime yeah. or close to it. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote that's ringing in my ear from Walt that he said something like this. Behind every smile is a tear behind every tear is a smile and you're hitting on that relevance that emotional connection that um you know when you're sitting down like you said when you're first writing that script people should be able to see it and feel it and uh that that becomes that touchstone that everybody who's designing everything from a queue to uh a ride vehicle they are connecting back to that initial heartbeat absolutely a perfect example of what you just said the bat stanchions in the Haunted Mansion. Yes. Uh, Those are sold as collectibles because they're works of art unto themselves. But think about this, because this I didn't even realize until I did the research for the book. Uh, In the queue in the Haunted Mansion here in Florida, there's that moment where you're going this way and you make a turn to the right in that final switchback to the load belt. And that bat, instead of like just lopping off a wing 
they hmm. sculpted a second version with the wing folded in because they knew it was going to sit at a turn. That wow. is attention to detail. That is what makes this art. It'd be so easy to cut off the arm. Yeah, absolutely. Or cut off the wing. <laughs> absolutely. And those are, that, that's why it really, you know, I like to say, you know, that, that's really where the secret of the best theme design and uh, themed entertainment storytelling comes from is it's just that uh, almost obsessive attention to detail because that's what makes these experiences rich enough to get the repeatability that everyone's looking for. Um, you know, the operators, obviously, for, for business reasons, and then the guests, because they love being able to go on something. I was on Pirates or Mansion, one of them, last year and with my family. And I remember saying to my wife, I'm like, I had, and I, I don't remember what it was, but I'm like, I didn't notice that before. I wrote a book on this ride, <laughs> and I'm noticing something for the first time. That's, that is, cool. is, is, is a masterpiece. So, yeah, so really before is. we leave Disney and on to, to Universal's Epic Universe, I got to ask you about the Star Wars land that we could have, should have, would have had. Uh, well, yeah, it's interesting. At gunpoint. I, so tell me what you're not allowed to tell me. No, just kidding. Well, I don't, I, I'm actually not, not even sure what I'm not allowed to say. Um, but I, I try to treat these situations as though I still work for the companies. But there have been some things that have been publicly said that I feel comfortable with this. Sure. Um, we put in a, a, over a year on a, a version that, that drew from the first six films. Uh, and then mm. there was a certain point where Bob Iger said, you know, uh, he put uh, the project on pause and said, no, you know, we want to look forward. We want to base the land on uh, the Star Wars that's to come. Um, and, and at the time, J.J. Abrams wasn't uh, ready because he didn't have all of it to share his material with us. So the project was put on pause. And then when it was resumed, it went in that new direction. Uh, so, but the version I worked on, I consider to include some of the best work of my career, you know, drawing on uh, the, the characters, the locations, the story events of the first six films. And, and again, a lot of that is easy to discern, you know, because we made a presentation at the 2000 or the, uh, had a display yeah. at the 2013 uh, D23 show. Um, you know, so you have a pretty good idea of, of what some of that would have been. Uh, I can tell you that there was a dark ride that I worked on that to this day I'm convinced would have made people cry. It was a, even internally we, we started saying this is a borderline <laughs> spiritual experience. Wow, and wow. Uh, um, I, I don't think those things are dead. First of all, nothing at Disney ever is. And, uh, and I also think that, you know, Star Wars isn't going anywhere. And uh, so I think that a lot of those things could end up showing up in the parks down the line simply because much like the best of Disney, those characters, those deep, rich stories stand the test of time. Star Wars has yeah. been around for, you know, close to, you know, Empire Strikes Back is 40 years old this year. Yeah. And it's it, it was number one at the box office this year. Now, granted, uh, on a couple of weekends. Now, granted, there have been extraordinary <laughs> circumstances, but not many films can take that number one spot 40 years later. So I, I think, um, you know, we'll continue to see great Star Wars experiences coming off the screen and into the parks for, for years to come, including now the small screen, because Mandalorian's where it's at, man. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, to, to your point about um, sort of making good on the promise that uh, people are seeing that, hey, Star Wars is at Disneyland. Star Wars is at Hollywood Studios. You have to make good on that promise that when they get there, they're going to see something that's quintessentially Star Wars. And uh, so it sounds like those the first six film version that you guys worked on was hitting all those marks. It's like, we are going to see Chewbacca. We are going to see, or well, he's in the, the new one because right. they live, live, live a very long time, but we're going right. to see Yoda and all the, the, and then, and then to make that turn and say, no, 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 we're going to make the promise to this younger generation and to their kids. It's kind of an interesting uh, turn and, and almost, well, it was risky. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously it was successful. Um, and there's no question that the land is is gorgeous. It's a masterpiece. Rise of the Resistance is a masterpiece. And, and as someone with a writing background, I'm just astounded by the the sequenced storytelling and how it just builds and how you truly feel like you're having an experience. You do not yeah. feel like you're going on a Star Wars ride. Nope. You feel nope. what they want you to feel. So we could debate... Uh, because uh, I think it comes down to, to Tony Baxter's uh, concept of emotional relevance. So a portion of the audience a, or a different portion of the audience is getting more of that emotional relevance than the folks like us who grew up with the originals. Uh, and I think history will will judge uh, whether or not that was the exact right decision. I mean, I still get a lump in my throat when I turn the corner and see the Millennium Falcon, because I've wanted to yep, do sure, that yep. for 40-some years. Um, you know, <laughs> w- would I like to see Han sitting in the cockpit? Of course. But um, again, <laughs> Disneyland, and I use that as a stand-in for all Disney parks, or really all theme parks, uh, they are living laboratories, and they are living organisms. So, for example, um, I could picture a time when somebody makes the decision, and it would cost money, but not a ton of money, where somebody makes the decision, you know what, we're going to take Batu back to the original uh, time period the, of the original trilogy, and Rise of the Resistance is going to be called Rise of the Rebellion now. And instead yeah, yeah. of Kylo Ren uh, and... Uh, uh, and um, I can never remember his name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's Darth Vader and uh, and Tarkin and Han and yes. Luke are down there helping get you you know into yeah, the escape. And Leia pod. is pushing you to, and R2D2. Yeah, and you're uh, and yeah. you're fleeing the Death Star, not a Star Destroyer. You could do that with in our world. I don't want to minimize it, but fairly minimal alteration yeah. and have right, a completely right, different right. story in a completely different time period. To me, that's what you could have one. Yeah. It, you could have one at a, at uh, the original park and one at the, yeah. uh, at Walt Disney world and, and everybody will want to go to see both. Yeah. And in, in a way <laughs> that's the star Wars equivalent of what they did at pirates by adding Johnny Depp. They brought it into this new era. Well, by adding Darth Vader, you could bring uh, galaxy's edge into a previous era. And that's yes. really the beauty of what we do for a living, because it's a living organism, you know. And again, we all know the quote: you know, Disneyland will never be completed as long as there's imagination uh, and a lot of capital uh, left in the <laughs> world. <laughs> but that's what makes it fun. Well, jumping over to Universal, one of the things before we jump into the the really ground up new parks, which uh, you know, the fact that uh, 
uh, Beijing isn't open yet, and Epic Universe is kind of paused out. A lot of uh, you know uh, the U.S. audience may or may not be aware really of the full scope and scale of of those you know Epic projects, literally. Um, but I, I did want to just touch on the Jimmy Fallon thing because to me that was such a wonderful out of the box reinvention of the the pre show. Q, whatever you want to call that, it was kind of like blowing up that idea of a Q. Um, can you just touch on that and uh, what uh, what you brought there? That's a really interesting story for a number of reasons. One, I've already you know if you if you go back to 2014, I've already made this incredibly emotional decision to leave Imagineering for Universal because it was very important to me to step it up into that creative director role. So I will never forget, I, I turned in my two weeks notice and uh, the executive producer from the Universal Creative uh, Core Studio called me and said, hey, I know you still got two weeks, but I at least wanted to get you thinking about what you're going to work on so you can kind of hit the ground running in two weeks. And I'm sitting there on the other end going, oh man, what's he going to say? Harry Potter, <laughs> King Kong, Universal Monsters. And he goes, Jimmy Fallon. And, and, and I, I go, what about him? Well, he's getting his own thrill ride, and we need you to figure out what that's going to be. And I, wow. and I just, there was dead silence for about 10 seconds, which is a long time on a phone call. And then I literally just went, we're, 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 we're going to do what now? I did, you know, because it's like, I, I am also, and this was purely coincidental, a fan and student of late night, always have been, you know, going all the way back to being a little kid and staying up and, and watching Johnny Carson from the stairs to my bedroom. Um, but when you get that phone call, it, you, you don't think thrill ride. Oh, we'll do the tonight show. You know, It did not yeah, seem right, very you don't. intuitive. So uh, there was a, a period of time where we really struggled with what the story was going to be. And then I returned to my own roots of storytelling where I thought, okay, we're in New York, you know, the, uh, the location, which is where Twister and Ghostbusters were, is literally the front door to New York. So you're thinking, well, what could be more perfect than a facsimile of 30 Rock? This, is per this actually enhances that whole land, sure. you know, beyond just what we're going to do in the ride. But it's the then most I, New York attraction in the land. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get to that, too, because that's a very important point. Um, but I, I took Tony's advice and said, okay... It's Jimmy Fallon. That's not enough. It's got to be the Tonight Show that we're celebrating. And even that's not enough. We're going to go back and we're going to uh, show people who Steve Allen, Jack Parr, Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, and Conan O'Brien were leading up to Jimmy. And then the other big thing was from the beginning, it was meant to be a Universal's first virtual line experience. Yeah. And I'll never forget being in those early meetings, people saying, yeah, we got to figure out how we can get people engaged with their devices. And like my head almost blew up and maybe, <laughs> maybe it's because, you know, I'm getting older, but I'm like, no, I don't want people staring down at their phones. We know they're already doing that anyway. Why contribute further to it? The Tonight Show is about fun, humor, positivity, and human connection. So what I want to do in this pre-show space, because even with the virtual line, uh, you're going to be spending some time in the building when you come back, but uh, when it's time to ride. So I said on the on the bottom floor, people are going to feel like they're walking into the lobby at 30 Rock, which is an experience unto itself uh, if you've been there. And we treated that with the, with no less reverence than if we were trying to recreate Hogwarts. 
Uh, and we've had <laughs> Tina Fey came to the ride before it opened, called Jimmy and said, I love it. It felt like I was going to work. And then she spent 10 <laughs> minutes on the terrazzo floor, the marble, the floor. And she talked about like nothing but the floor because what wound up happening was not only did we use the same material, we actually went to the same quarry that they go to for, wow. for 30 rocks. So when you say authentic, <laughs> it's authentic. And part of me was a little dismayed because I'm like, well, if Tina was so enamored of the floor, it's like we could have saved a hundred million dollars by not doing the rest of it. <laughs> um, and then I said, but once they get upstairs, I want it all to be live. I want to introduce live entertainment. I want people to be able to hear the ragtime gals. I want them to be able yeah. to meet hashtag the panda. I want them to be to take part in lip sync battle. I want them to be, to be able to play some of those great games that Jimmy plays with his celebrity guests. Uh, some of it we had to streamline. Uh, we ultimately didn't have confidence that enough people would have the courage to do lip sync battle. So we ultimately gave it to the ragtime girl uh, gals. Um, and then we had these interactive tables that were designed to resemble Jimmy's desk that had all sorts of other interactive stuff you could do while your phone was plugged in. But we made sure yes. that it was all driven by live entertainment, live happenings that you would participate in. And it was a well, it seems like it seems like you were the perfect choice for that because you've got live entertainment mixed in with an attraction yeah, absolutely and the, the, and the funny thing it, but it was a paradigm shift so we found ourselves having to convince operations entertainment uh merchandise to a lesser extent uh that this was a new way of doing business at least for this experience because uh, we had an executive one time say in a meeting well this is far more entertainment than we would ever put in a queue that, or this is far more than we would ever do for Q Entertainment. I said, ah, you just hit on it. This is not yep. Q Entertainment. Right. This, this is, is a show this, that happens to sit at the entrance, at the mouth of an attraction. And uh, sure enough, that uh, wound up being, uh, those elements wound up being among the most popular. And then uh, to your point, Mel, about New York, you know, we uh, we knew that there would be so many international guests coming to the park that have no exposure to The Tonight Show or Jimmy because the show doesn't air there that very early on I said, New York has to be a star of the show. So it's uh, it's really a yeah. three-legged stool, Jimmy, The Tonight Show, and New York. Because even if you don't know who the funny guy with the brown hair is in the suit, <laughs> you definitely know what the Statue of Liberty is and what Times Square is and what the Empire State Building is. And and that proved to be a smart move too. And then the, the core story for the ride, I was incredibly stressed about because we were having trouble nailing what that would be. I'll never forget we had a pitch on a Friday afternoon, five o'clock, end of the day, and it did not go well. And Mark Woodbury, our president, was walking out of the room, just kind of shaking his head. He turns around like a gunslinger and he goes, <laughs> you guys better figure this out. Have a good weekend. And the door closed <laughs> and we're all just like puddles of, you know, ectoplasm. Um, so I spent the entire weekend going through hours and hours and hours of DVR Tonight Show. Jimmy Fallon almost ended my marriage, and not even for the sexy reasons <laughs> you would think, but just because it was always on TV. Um, and I came in Monday morning, and again, using that training from Tony Baxter, I came in Monday morning and I said, it's the races. It's those crazy races he does with his celebrity pals. It yep, gives yep. us movement. It gives us a vehicle. 
And uh, all we're really going to do is blow it up from the corridors of Studio 6B to all of Manhattan on the streets, in the water, and in the air. And it's not just against one contest, uh, one uh, opponent, a celebrity opponent. It's against the, old, uh, the whole audience. And that's yes. where it became the ultimate race for New York. Uh, yeah, all in pursuit of the Hemsworth Cup, which is the actual trophy that they race for on the show. <laughs> but if you, if you think about everything we just talked about, all of that came from the DNA of the source material, which is why my yeah. philosophy when dealing with adaptations has always been, and I, and I got this from Tony, give them what they expect, but in ways they will never expect. And to mm-hmm. me, that is the trick, because then if you're going on something called Frozen or, you know, something called E.T. or Back to the Future, you know, you're going to be satisfied because we honored those properties, those stories. But we did so in a way that caught you off guard or took you on uh, by surprise or did something that you never expected it to do. That's the marriage, yeah. the expected yeah. and the unexpected. It's not an attraction, but, you know, what you're saying is ringing true to me about the original Pirates of the Caribbean film, that when I walked out of there, I said it had absolutely everything in it that I could ever want in a pirate film. Sword fight, cannon battle, uh, <laughs> walk the plank, uh, ghosts and, and uh, skeletons. I mean, it just, like it, that thing read like a checklist of pirate stuff. And so, you know, if that's, if that's what you're building, if you're building a place that has those things, you're going to win. I have to tell you a funny story because it ties directly to what you just said. When I wrote the book on pirates and I sat down with Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, they said exactly what you said in different words. And what's funny when you consider what pirates became, they said, okay, we got one shot at this thing. So we've got to put in every pirate thing you can imagine. And then meanwhile, as the movie's passing $300 million and and the studio comes back and says, we want a trilogy, they're kind of like, oh. What else do you got? We we may want to have hung hung on to a little something. But then then in the sequels, though, you got sea monsters and voodoo and and the blue bayou. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. But the pirates have done just fine. It reminds me of Universal Studios Beijing. You've you've got this uh, you know arms race going on in China where Disney is doubling down on reinventing the Magic Kingdom concept, and and you know arguably Universal Studios Japan, pretty epic park, has already kind of taken the the core Universal Studios Florida model and and kind of made it uh, you know into its own kind of thing. Uh, I I just remember viscerally walking into that model room and seeing the Universal Beijing model and, and recognizing kind of the fresh thinking and, and the, the, you know, brilliance of the, the placemaking approach and kind of reinventing the circulation system. Uh, just, I mean, getting a, a park ground up, <laughs> how, how was that experience? Well, the first thing was it, it completely validated my decision to go to Universal because I'm going from, well, you can never be a creative director, you don't draw, to literally being at Universal for less than a year working on one attraction and having your executives come to you and say, uh, we need you to go down here and head up the whole thing. 
and and, and wow. again as someone who's just most grown expensive up, theme park in the history of the universe yeah and, and you're, you're sitting there thinking wait, wait, wait a minute I, I i just i'm lucky to have the jimmy ride i'm not ready to be like a joe Rody or a tony bax you have me confused with someone someone else um but what was so what it, it was a wonderful opportunity a once in a lifetime opportunity and to me, it represents an interesting hybrid in that you have, it does have studios in the name, you know, so we have our sort of core DNA in uh, the, the park, and then it opens in Hollywood. Uh, it, but then once you move beyond Hollywood, it has immersive single property themed lands. So again, now you're seeing, so you're seeing the roots of the universal experience with Hollywood Boulevard and filmmaking and, and that whole legacy surrounded by essentially all wizarding world lands in that they're, you know, single property lands. And the approach that I took from a storytelling perspective um, and, and, and hopefully guests will pick up on this is you're entering this magical uh, studio, not magical, literally, but you know, the, just the, the, the glamor, the romance of it. You're going down Hollywood Boulevard, and then you're immersing yourself in worlds that have sprung from the imaginations mm. of screenwriters and directors and filmmakers. And that was really how we approached that. Uh, and then uh, beyond that, it was a, a very careful analysis of uh, what property, what properties we felt merited a whole land. Yeah, because obviously, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't get very far for my pitch for an immersive. Uh, land based on the Smokey and the Bandit interconnected universe. <laughs> so it's, it, it's got to be something like a Jurassic World or uh, Despicable yeah, Me yeah. and the Minions and things like that. And that was how Transformers came about, because originally that was going to be more of a Disney-themed land that was based on action and adventure. Um, and it had a lot of uh, disparate elements. And then I was looking at it and, uh, and one of those elements was the Transformers e-ticket attraction. So I'm like, all right, well, the way this... And then it, at one point, it evolved into like a sci-fi land, which started to make a little more sense. And then at a certain point, I went, well, wait a minute. If the e-ticket is Transformers, we've got the coaster and a round ride. Why don't we make those two things Transformers? And now we've got a cohesive Transformers land. And I'm now more proud of that storytelling, I think, than almost anything else I've done because Transformers is a huge property in China. And uh, partnering with Hasbro, uh, we told a very compelling story that is a direct sequel to some of the events in Transformers 4, which featured all these battles in China. And our story is that because of those battles... The Autobots have partnered with the Chinese and the human race at large to create this metro base. Because the land itself, metro base, is a transformer. And that will come out in various pieces of the storytelling. So now, all of a sudden, you have an (laughs) interconnected experience that enriches all of those individual components. Yeah, what a shift from, um, you know, kind of the almost the intentional contrast of st- still feeling uh, like you're walking around a Hollywood backlot that you get at Universal Florida and, and Hollywood and the really the other parks where, you know, you really uh, enjoy the, the kind of intentional jarring contrast in, in most cases of the different lands, but to, to have these fully immersed, immersive environments uh, that you step into those uh, kind of different worlds is, is pretty, pretty unique. 
Yeah, and I think it's what people want. Now, it's interesting what you just described was a huge problem for us, as I know you know, in the last half of the 90s and into the 2000s with DVDs and special features and bonus content. And now everyone knows what a green screen is. Everyone knows how everything works. So they don't really want to come to a theme park and get a movie making lesson. You know, they want to be in it. They want to live the movie. They want to live the adventure. And in some ways, and that, that's not been great for the financial side of the house, because they're like, yeah, it's a lot cheaper when you have plywood <laughs> with stencils, like Star Wars set, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now you're asking me to build Tatooine, you know. But, um, <laughs> but that really has been a shift. And uh, it was a problem here in Florida, because uh, for for reasons that that I'm not entirely familiar with, because it gets into the political and economic and tax situation, it uh, Orlando never became Hollywood East the way a lot of people expected it to, and instead you see place, places like New Orleans and Atlanta, Atlanta is yeah. like Yollywood. Marvel <laughs> Central. Um, but there was a point where uh, Universal uh, and specifically Disney, Disney first, kind of made the tacit decision to get out of the production business. Well, what that did at Hollywood Studios was it literally cut off a leg, a narrative leg of what that park stood on, because that whole park was predicated on a combination of a Hollywood that never was and always will be and a working film and television production studio. And then it was also initially the victim of its own success, where there were so many people, the Imagineers and the operators working together we're scrambling just to accommodate. Like, all right, well, we're going to bull down, yeah. Yeah. bulldoze down here and let people walk down there now. Okay, uh, reroute the tram, and now people can walk on New York Street. There were a lot right. of snap decisions made because they had no other choice, and that's what led oh. uh, Michael, you know, to make the declaration. I think during 1989, within five years, we're going to double the size of the park. Sure enough, right on schedule, summer of '94, Sunset Boulevard with. Tower of Terror, Relocated Beauty and the Beast, and uh, five years after that, uh, Rock and Roller Coaster. Rock and Roller Coaster. But it did create, and as someone who has spent a a good deal of my Imagineering time working with that park, it did create problems because instead of being a park that was allowed to grow naturally and organically and, and be more carefully master planned, it had more of this cancerous quality to it where it had to, it mutated you know, here and there and like, uh, yes, okay, yes. Uh, 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 you know, cut, uh, blow down that wall, put a street here, you know, because you were always on the defensive. Um, and on one level, it's a good problem to have because it's the result of success. But for storytellers, it becomes more uh, uh, challenging because you're like, all right, well, how do we make sense of this? And the reason that's important, it's not because we're, it's not just because we're storytelling nerds, but I am firmly convinced that the audience is much smarter and more sophisticated than some designers give them credit for. And even if they can't articulate what's wrong throughout their day in a park, they can tell that something is off, whether it's B- mm. B- the wrong BGM playing somewhere, the, a trash can yep. that was moved from one land to another, you know, the copper penny, as we, as we call it, the movie Somewhere in Time, uh, the mm-hmm. element that snapped Christopher Reeve out of the illusion that he was in another century was a coin yep. from the wrong time period. So we call mm-hmm. that sort of the copper penny theory. And um, it becomes... That's a great one. Yeah, and you, it becomes harder to avoid those when you're constantly on the defensive 
uh, even if you're reacting to something positive like runaway success and, and record attendance. Wow. Well, you know, after leaving the the motherland, the superpowers of Disney and Universal, <laughs> you know, um, with, with some of the fun collaborations, that, you know, that we've had at Storyland, um, you know, I'd love to get your first impressions, you know, while you're still kind of kind of a newbie to the post Disney Universal <laughs> epic universe world of, um, you know, working with, uh, you know, kind of non IP or um, kind of consumer product, you know, to, just again, what's your first impressions? What do you you know, based on what you're allowed to talk about. <laughs> well, it well that has more to do with you than it does with me, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I'm allowed I'm to talk. I'm not about. very good at that, by the way. Right. <laughs> Without my lawyer beat me up. <laughs> so, um, well, it's scary uh, from the standpoint that I have been a staff person for close to 30 years, and I've only worked for those two companies. So, on that level, it's scary. But I try to focus on the other side of the coin, which is uh, it's also incredibly exciting and in a way liberating. And uh, I know this is going to sound like I'm saying this because I'm on your show, but Storyland is no better. There's no better example of that than Storyland, because some of the things that I've been invited to play with you guys on, to me, feel like the early days of WED for any number of reasons. The A smaller, dedicated group of passionate people. Um, some of the subject matter that I've been asked to participate in, I have to say it's been more refreshing than anything else. And uh, there are certain projects where you've sent me decks and I'll look at the artwork and I, and I will literally stop and think, oh my gosh, that looks like it could be a Herb Ryman sketch for an area of Disneyland. And oh my gosh, isn't it refreshing mm-hmm. that I don't see Optimus Prime in any of these images? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and there's also a great deal of freedom that comes with that. And I think what I'm most excited about is, wow, for the potentially for the first time in my professional life, all of a sudden I have a shot at a big thunder or a haunted mansion, or a Pirates of the Caribbean, something new and original that's ever that's never been done before. Or even if it's based on a place or a historical event, it's still something that offers a great deal of freedom in the storytelling. But I will say the work is the same, and the reason for that mm-hmm. is because the audience is the same and the end goal is the same. We want to provide people three things, and I have always believed this, but it's never been more true than now. These are the three things we provide, escape, comfort, and reassurance. Mm. And as we all know, uh, those things are in short supply right now, and yet they have never been needed more, which is why it's such a shame that that these present conditions have impacted uh, the theme park world the way they have, and not just theme parks, but movie theaters, concerts, live entertainment of any kind, the things that we as a people traditionally turn to for comfort, escape, and reassurance have been taken from us or compromised. You know, I hate to put it in a flippant way, but like, at least during the Depression, I could still go to the movies, you know, and at least during (laughs) World War II, I might be worried sick about friends and family members, but I could escape to the movies or go to a dance or whatever. Yep. This particular crisis has hit us beyond the the horrific medical, biological implications. It's hit us where we hurt mentally and emotionally the most because it's taken all that stuff away too when we need it the most. And when it comes back, it's going to come back with a vengeance. 
Yes, people will want to come and seek out these experiences with, without question. Uh, with their families, with their friends. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It will be an entirely new uh, world once we're Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate that because it, it, it shows what it's not just a nice to have. It really is a need to have. No, it we, is an absolute those. mental and emotional and even physical necessity right. because of the chemicals yeah. that are mm. produced and all that stuff that as a writer, I'm too dumb to know about, but it's like, <laughs> it, it really is part of our health. I've even said to my wife, honey, tonight I need, she's like, Oh, let's watch season six of whatever. And I'm like, I literally have to go off and read because uh, reading for me and film, there are things that I need to just nurture myself and refill the well. And I happen to be, and I, you know, I don't want to get into like, I hate that people have turned this into a political thing, but I'm one of the people that has responsibly worn my mask and done everything I've been asked to do. But I have, my family's been to all of the parks here in Central Florida. And I'll tell you what, I feel a heck of a lot safer there than I do at Target or any number of other places. And I go to the movies and, you know, no one's sitting by me. I feel perfectly safe, but you know what? I'm in that comforting surrounding of my movie theater. And if they do not get James Bond and Wonder Woman and Black Widow back where they belong soon, (laughs) I'm going to lose it. That's great. Well, we just can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, I I think we should save an epic universe conversation. I was for, thinking the exact uh, same episode. thing. That is at least a, another episode. <laughs> so. And and your your heart and your passion just uh, kicked my butt today. I'm just so grateful for this interview and your time, Jason. I, I remember I, when you I used to have that, Freddie. I think we've worn you worn you down a little bit. Worn me thin. No, 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 no. Okay, so so uh, I'm thinking in uh, next week or so, I'm gonna go visit uh, and hang out with Jason and one yeah, of these Yeah, well, parks. we're going to get so, some time together, all three of us. So yeah, we're looking absolutely. Forward to, we are. Can't say where. Us, so. Undisclosed yeah. location. Yeah, yeah. So it'll yeah. probably be with Dick Cheney. There's a reference for you. <laughs> oh, no. His references are now 20 years old. That's what I think of. Anytime yeah. someone says undisclosed location, that's all I think of. Dislocation, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a, more of a dislocation <laughs> exactly. uh, that we're, we're not going to share. But that's great. So, hey, thank you so much for coming on and look forward to having Having you on again in the future. No, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to talk about this stuff with like-minded people, and uh, especially now, you know, when when we just have to stay energized, stay passionate about the work that we do because uh, our our audience hasn't gone anywhere. Literally, they've been at home, <laughs> yeah. So they're never going to need uh, <laughs> what we provide more uh, than uh, God willing in the coming months and and uh, coming years here. I agree. That's great. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, guys. Looking forward to seeing you soon. You know, Mel, it's really interesting to hear Jason's perspective on creating these lands, some lands from scratch, rather than uh, basing them on IP, like the Minions, for instance. And um, I can see why creatively it would be exciting to create within an existing IP story world. Like, think about, you know, at the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, you can see R2-D2's droid tracks in the in the hardscape um but i i imagine that it would be liberating to create a land that's completely free of ip where you don't have to get clearance for certain things so for designers inside your studio mel and and uh the story writers and uh, folks like jason um how do you sort of prepare for and how do you uh approach projects that are 
IP based that have like very stringent standards and story uh, uh, boundaries? And how do you approach one that's just brand new out of the box? You know, I think for us, um, obviously, there's a natural tendency to be drawn towards IPs or story universes that uh, that you've already have some history or emotional connection to, right? So obviously, if, yeah, if we're getting involved with Marvel, Star Wars, you know, even Lego, you know, that's stuff that formed our, our childhood and our lives, right? But but I would say that um, regardless, uh, because it's such a different medium, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, uh, a novel uh, or a, a, a book uh, to the two-dimensional filmmaking medium to the three-dimensional spatial storytelling medium, the key for us and our team is really just kind of getting uh, behind the heart and the motivation and, and kind of just falling in love with the, the themes and the Again, the, the meta narrative of the story, and again, it, it really is almost irrelevant at that point because yeah, there's a formal process of going up and down the the food chain for you know sign offs and approvals and design intent and all that good stuff. But but in terms of really what keeps you motivated, um, I think as a creative and a designer, regardless of what discipline you're coming in from, I think is there's there's some just common threads of uh, kind of capturing uh, the heart of the the um, the audience uh, that are the same things that we need to get, you know, ourselves kind of, you know, captured uh, up into, if that makes sense. And I think, you know, a great example of that would be uh, someone like Joe Rohde, you know, getting handed Avatar. Right. So, you know, regardless of what he thought right. of the movie, it's almost irrelevant because the fact is you're, you're being asked to do a completely different genre when you're, you're inviting the world to step onto a completely different scaled stage. And it's, it's not so oh, much yeah. about how much you care or don't care about the specific characters, for example, uh, in that, um, you, you know, what he was able to do is catch on to that kind of larger context story of, you know, our relationship to nature. And, um, and that's just such a, a timeless, uh, you know, thing that relates to any humans uh, in, in our universe. And I think that that's, that's the idea, again, whether it's a small scale original IP um, or, you know, our favorite, you know, comic superhero. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I love it. And it, it is really cool to see both. I'm glad they both exist in a world we can go visit. Well, Mel, there appears to be a 20-foot tall King Kong gorilla peeking in on our conversation. Maybe it's time we made our way back to the dock. What do you say? Let's start rolling down that river, Freddy. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. We love to make this show, and we love that you love it too. And we also want you to know we do not take your listening for granted. We're so grateful for it. Would you mind helping us out one more time by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts? We really appreciate it. We want to thank our guest, Jason Sorrell. You can connect with him on Twitter at Jason Sorrell. And make sure you search for Jason's books on Amazon or your favorite physical bookshop. Get access to more stories and interviews at ThemedAttraction.com. Start your own profile, discuss the latest advancements, and interact with your fellow theme park designers around the world. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at ThemedAttraction and join our active discussion group on LinkedIn. 
Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson, other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Barry is the author of Imagineering in American Dreamscape, the Genesis, Evolution, and Redemption of the Regional Theme Park. This book tells the epic stories of regional theme parks and the strong-willed visionaries behind them. Some of the stories you may have heard, most you probably haven't, and it is a fascinating tale to tell. It's available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or direct from the publisher at Rivershore Creative. You know, Mel, Barry has been on a quest lately to create the perfect new animal hybrid. He asked me the other day what I think we should call a mix between an elephant and a rhinoceros. Elephino. Thanks for listening, folks. 